Oh, hey there, campers. Before we do anything else today, we need y'all to take a second and listen to this. John 911, where are you marching? 1810 Cedar Street, please. What's wrong? My wife had an accident. She's still breathing. What kind of accident? She's still on the stairs. She's still breathing. Please come. Is she conscious? What? Is she no. conscious? No, she's not conscious. Okay. How many stairs did you fall down? Huh? How many stairs? Stairs. How many stairs? Calm down, sir. Huh? Calm down. No, uh, 15, 20, I don't know. Please, get somebody here right away. Please. Okay, somebody's dispatching the ambulance no. while I ask you questions. What you just heard was 38 seconds from the night of December 9th, 2001, timestamped at 2.40 in the morning. 58-year-old husband, father, author, and newspaper columnist Michael Peterson had just come in from sitting out by his swimming pool with a glass of wine to find his 48-year-old wife, Kathleen, lying unresponsive at the bottom of the staircase inside their home, with a pool of blood around her head. Stricken with panic, he'd knelt in the blood next to his wife and cradled her unconscious body as her breathing faded, pleading with the 911 dispatcher to send help as fast as they could. Within minutes, the front of the large colonial-style Peterson Mansion in Durham, North Carolina, was completely lit up with flashing blue and red lights. Police entered the home to find a hysterical Michael Peterson clinging to his 26-year-old son, Todd, who had gotten home from a Christmas party shortly after the ambulance. To police, the sheer amount of blood, and in their opinion, the over-the-top emotional reaction of Michael Peterson immediately raised their suspicions that this might not be the tragic accident that he'd claimed. Today, we're going to take you through a case and a trial that would become so infamous a documentary crew would end up dedicating almost 18 years to it. Countless big-time crime reporters would cover it, and in 2022, our Lord and Savior Colin Firth and great lady Tony Collette would actually star as the Peterson couple in an HBO Max original show about it. You're going to hear way more than you ever hoped or imagined today and next week, because this is a two-parter, about staircases, a blowpoke, wild owls, blood spatter analysis, utterly outlandish death coincidences, and being a bisexual middle-aged father in the South. Gather round, buttercups, and welcome to Camping is Cancelled. Oh man, the mountains call my number one. I'm just a life-size lottery ticket in the hand of the one. Okay. With that very distressing 911 call we just made you listen to in mind, we're going to do our best to break down the massive convoluted web that is the blended family situation of the Petersons, starting from the beginning and leading all the way up to the night Michael found Kathleen at the bottom of the stairs. Michael Peterson was born on October 23, 1943, in Nashville, Tennessee. He was the editor of his college newspaper and president of Sigma Nu Fraternity at Duke University. After his graduation in 1966, Michael married an elementary school teacher named Patricia Sue, and the two of them lived in Germany while she taught and Michael worked as a civilian for the U.S. Department of Defense. 
1968, Michael enlisted in the Marine Corps and was sent to Vietnam, where he was awarded a Silver Star and a Bronze Star for his service. In 1971, he was injured in a car accident in Japan and honorably discharged. While living in Germany, Michael and Patricia had a son in 1974 named Clayton, and in 1976, they had another son, who they named Todd. Around this time, Michael and Patricia also became very close friends with their next-door neighbors and fellow military couple George and Elizabeth Ratliff. The Ratliffs had two young children themselves, baby daughters named Margaret and Martha. In 1983, George Ratliff was on deployment in Granada when he unexpectedly suffered a heart attack and died, leaving Elizabeth and the two girls without a husband and father. Michael and Patricia were devastated for their friend Elizabeth, and they enfolded her and her two daughters even closer into their family, so much so that the families often cooked meals together, and according to the documentary series The Staircase, Michael would even go over and help Elizabeth with the girls, bedtime and cleaning up the house. Caitlin, didn't you tell me before, because you're from a military family, mm -hmm. that this family's becoming super close when they're on deployment in other countries is not weird. No. I mean, because that's their people, that's their group. So you're close and the yeah. camaraderie behind it. Yeah, that makes sense. But I mean, I wish somebody would come over and help me with childcare and Yeah, <laughs> I mean, seriously. I don't want my husband to die, but... <laughs> oh, gosh. If I get a free nanny, that'd be great. <laughs> and yes, we know your jaded little eyebrows are shooting up right now. That uglies were definitely getting bumped by Michael and Patricia. Mm. But by all accounts from the Petersons and their friends, Michael and Elizabeth's relationship really was only ever platonic. So we may never know the real story, or we can choose to believe that the Petersons really did want to come alongside their close friend during a difficult time. Or inside. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean we'll let bygones be bygones yes the story does get juicier <laughs> yes it does tragically elizabeth ratliff would also be killed in an accident mere months after the death of her husband and the peterson stepped in and legally adopted the two baby girls martha and margaret and apparently this decision wasn't solely out of the goodness of their heart because both Elizabeth and George had specified in their individual wills that they wanted Mike and Patricia to assume full custody of their children in the event of their deaths. Damn. Yeah, you don't do that unless you're very close with people. Oh, yeah. So. Like, no family or anything? Yeah, like, just yeah. your neighbors? Yeah. But, I mean. Maybe they really were that close to them. But there's a very short list of people that I would entrust my children to, so. They must have really been good good to each other. And nobody just takes kids. Yeah. You know, just all willing. I mean, unless you're an absolute piece of shit and you're profiting off them. Yeah. But. I certainly would not just take anybody's mm -mm. kids. I have enough of my own. Now, the family connections are going to get even more complicated here, but we're going to do our best to explain it clearly. In 1987, Michael and Patricia Peterson made the decision to end their marriage and divorce. By all accounts, it was amicable. Their marriage had just always been very platonic, and they both were ready for something more. And Michael moved back to his home state of North Carolina. He also took their legally adopted daughters, Margaret and Martha, to live with him. At first, Michael and Patricia's biological sons, Todd and Clayton, remained living in Germany with their mother. But after around a year or so, the boys also joined Michael, Margaret, and Martha for a good in North Carolina. 
1986, as Michael and Patricia were in the process of dissolving their marriage, Mike met a woman who was also in the midst of her own divorce, a 33-year-old successful business executive for the telecommunications company Nortel named Kathleen Atwater. By the way, mega badass alert, Kathleen was not only the top of her class in high school, she was the first ever female student accepted into Duke's engineering school and eventually assumed the position of vice president for Nortel. Whoa. I could never. No. When Kathleen's divorce was finalized in 1989, she and her daughter, Caitlin, with a C, yes. Atwater, moved onto the same street as Michael and his four children. And the girls all quickly became close friends, which meant that Michael and Kathleen also began spending time together, and it wasn't long before sparks began to fly between the two single parents. It was only a matter of months before Michael and Kathleen blended their families together under the same roof, and after a few years of living together, the couple got married in 1996. My year. Oh, that's the year you were born? Oh. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm going to put my age out there for everyone to know. I'm going to put my age out there, too, and say that I was shooketh when, what does it say? Back, oh, that Kathleen was 33 mm-hmm. when her and Michael met. I just turned 31. So that is when I read about these cases, you mm-hmm. picture people as being like the age of your parents or whatever but no she's basically oh, my fuck. age she's that's crazy you know that's seven years away for me yeah you still got so some time i'm the youngest in our crowd it's I'm, two years I'm away for me i'm grasping to it no it's okay it's okay <laughs> i'm a young a young 31 and michael was i think around 10 years older than her so he'd have been in his early 40s mm-hmm. By the late 1990s, Michael was enjoying the moderate success of the three historic fiction novels he'd published and was also writing an opinion column for the Durham newspaper, The Herald Sun. And by this point, Kathleen had actually risen to the position of vice president at Nortel and was making $150,000 a year. And thank you, inflation calculator. In 2001, this would be the 2023 equivalent of nearly $260,000. Damn. I mean, that really couldn't even buy you a house in this market, but... Yeah, $260,000 a year, though, that's... I mean, that's one income. That's a lot. Five kids, though. Yeah. Still seems like a shitload of money to me. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I might I'm be poor. shit-talking a little, but, like, <laughs> I would gladly accept uh, any. And I tried to look up how much money michael's novels made it doesn't seem like a whole lot like Mm -hmm. they like she was the primary provider in the relationship yeah he made some money but he was not the one with a lucrative career and like continuous salary like she was so Mm -hmm. he supplemented their income but she definitely was the one bringing home the bacon Kathleen was also very passionate about their local arts community and would host lavish galas for art and dance groups at their $1.8 million mansion. Whoa. This place is massive. The Staircase documentary that covers years upon years of all of this shit, you see this uh, home quite a bit, and 
it looks like its own neighborhood. It really mm-hmm. is so, so huge. I don't know how anybody can need that much space, but I guess if you're hosting those huge galas and stuff and um, yeah. Big houses always scare me because I'm like, that's more room for someone to hide. Oh, yes. And for hauntings. Yes. Yes. But it is a beautiful house. It is beautiful. I thought the layout was shit, but that's just, you know, unnecessary yeah. commentary. But <laughs> just no, so you guys know. It's not like all of them. I don't own a <laughs> $1.8 million mansion. But it is a little bit, I don't know what the right word is, just like jarring when you walk in the front door with the documentary crew and it doesn't feel big and open. I it's just kind just of like, oh, like small. Maybe this kind of plays into it but when jacob and i watched the documentary mm-hmm. when we first like saw the inside of the house we're like something's just off and then we see the kids mm. and we're like mm, something's just <laughs> off and like we just start seeing more things and we're like something's just off something is off and all of the decor is very cliche mm-hmm. rich people 1990s i don't know it's, yeah it's weird there is and maybe we just feel like everything's off because we feel that way about I mean, michael maybe peterson we just enjoy shit talking maybe so maybe we just inherently deeply unhappy and we need to find things wrong with everything <laughs> or we're just raging jealous because they had a beautiful home they really did way i more mean i would move we... in it in a second <laughs> a second her neighbor maureen barry said Quote, we called her the 48-hour-per-day woman because she lived life to the fullest on four or five hours of sleep at night, unquote. Hmm. So us, but... But I do not live life to the fullest on four hours of sleep. I live life with my cup half empty. Oh, hell yeah. For sure. I hiss at the sun when I wake up. But that's really impressive, though. No, I mean, her career, she was a real, like very a very strong independent like she got shit done yes yeah good for you kathleen michael not to be outdone actually ran for both durham city council and mayor in 1999 ultimately he didn't win either but the couple were quite well known in the durham county social circles and had a lot of friends and by all accounts behind closed doors the petersons and their mashup of five children were extremely happy and got along very well together According to the Peterson kids, a typical night in their house would look like everyone getting in from school to find Michael and Kathleen making dinner and enjoying a bottle of wine. And soon, everyone would be in the kitchen talking and laughing and having a great time. Martha described the gist of the relationship between Michael and Kathleen as that they, quote, took so much joy in each other's presence, unquote. Her sister Margaret said that Kathleen was incredibly open with them about everything and the family would talk together for hours at a time and never once did she detect any true animosity between her adopted parents. If there ever was a conflict, it would be something small like Kathleen getting frustrated with Michael for holding up dinner if he got home late from the gym, but even then it would end in everyone laughing. Michael's sons Todd and Clayton said they never once saw their father act out violently with aggression towards anyone and that if there ever was any sort of tension or argument they witnessed between him and Kathleen, their father's move would not to be fly off the handle. He would just kind of chuckle and walk away. So you do with that what you will. I just need to say that I hate this so much. This is super creepy. And to me, well, creepy is not even the right word. This is infuriating. It's if, un- unhinged to me. Yeah. If 
Josh and I are having a discussion, as married people tend to do, or my sister and I, Mm -hmm. somebody that I'm very close to that I am comfortable getting in a heated argument Mm -hmm. with, I want to have it out right then. Like, let's have it out. Let's get it all out on the table. It might feel really tense. We might say stuff that we need to apologize for later. But you do not walk away. See, and I know you, like, and you and Jacob are the same. Jacob wants to get it over with. And I know that Josh is the same as me in the sense that, like, I need to compose myself Mm. so that I can, because otherwise I will just point, I will be the meanest Mm. meanest person to you and destroy your confidence just like and not actually get to the point i just worsen things like i need to calm down i need to focus everything and then come back but to me it's the laughing and walking off oh yeah because it's that person establishing some sort of superiority in that situation or like putting you down like being like haha well you're just a moron or, so i'm not even <laughs> just gonna wait deal till with we're this. behind closed doors oh my gosh like yeah. that's what creeps me out but i yeah. know everybody reacts differently so and yeah. it's just like at the beginning of him the police saying that he was too emotional it's like yeah. you're damned if you do damned if you don't right. like how right. you react yeah and that is interesting too because he's very emotional and all the things that happen like when she's found in the police but in these sort of situations that just kind of chuckle and walk away to the completely untrained psychology armchair Mm -hmm. expert myself (laughs) that reads as somebody having that kind of emotionally avoidant personality where they are so avoidant of conflict or things being uncomfortable that they will literally just leave the room or nope out instead of having to deal with it Mm -hmm. but and i know we're reading way too much into this one thing todd said but it's that little chuckle it's it's the laugh part that really gets me yes because it's just like it it's sinister to me in some way or form and i would love to know how everyone reacts to conflict because i know some people aren't confrontational. Some some people do a nervous chuckle. Yeah. I get that. And but I yeah, will ugh. say that anytime, say that my husband has needed space, like he's needed to walk away and collect himself, he doesn't chuckle no. before he does so. So see, that- it's like when like Jacob ramps me up, and I'm like, uh huh, I will chuckles. do a chuckle. <laughs> see a chuckle's evil to me because like in mine i was like oh funny you mentioned that okay so caitlin is michael peterson <laughs> jacob should not be near a staircase well we don't have stairs in our house so he's good he's good for now oh man yeah that that little chuckle it's just, and that was something jake and i both when watching the documentary mm-hmm. we stopped we were like that's weird right oh yeah when his kid says that mm-hmm. yeah that's definitely weird for sure. With how seemingly great everything between his father and adopted mom were, when 26-year-old Clayton came home from a Christmas party and saw an ambulance in the driveway of the Durham mansion, his first assumption was that his 58-year-old father had suffered a heart attack. The relief he felt upon rushing into the house and seeing his father unharmed quickly turned to horror as a frantic Michael Peterson clung to his son and said, Kathleen, 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 while gesturing towards the grim scene at the bottom of the staircase. Fifteen minutes after Michael Peterson's first 911 call, he actually called again to say that Kathleen was no longer breathing, 
and she would be pronounced dead at the scene just minutes later. When Detective Art Holland first entered the Peterson home, he was shocked by the incredible amount of blood that, in his experience as a homicide detective, was simply not consistent with a mere fall down a flight of stairs. The base of the staircase where Kathleen lie was absolutely covered in blood. Blood drenched her hair and was all over her clothing. It was splattered all over the bottom three steps, the baseboards, and sprayed on the walls all the way up to nine feet at its highest point. There was also a large drop of blood on the concrete landing by the front door, as well as a smear of blood with the handprint in it on the inside of the home's front door. Michael Peterson had blood on his shoes and a small amount on the inner thigh of his shorts. This enormous amount of blood had come from seven gruesome wounds to the back of Kathleen's head. And Caitlin, the best way I can think to describe these wounds is that they're these long, thin, distinct splits in her skin all the way down to the bone. And they're all isolated like to the upper back and top areas of her head where if you were wearing a baseball cap and Mm -hmm. the back of it was curving down over the back of your head, that's where the splits of those wounds basically end. Some of them are all one line and others are like one line and then other little lines branching off of them. And... Someone later who was working on the case would describe one as actually a trident. It looks like a V shape with three prongs going down into the point of a V. And we're probably doing a poor job of explaining this. And so if you guys want to, you can easily find the autopsy photos. They're very uncomfortable to look at, but they will give you a very clear idea of what we are talking about but they are splits is really the Mm -hmm. best way I can think to describe them some are crooked yeah some are just shaped different and they don't scream like the the same object was hitting it yeah which we'll get further into that yeah and it doesn't scream falling down the stairs no it doesn't and it also doesn't scream and excuse me to be graphic but If you smash something with a blunt force weapon, you would expect to see a smashing type of wound or like a severe bruising around it. But these are not. They literally look like split. Genevieve does know best because she has stared at these photos (laughs) way too often. Oh, God. And if you've ever had the misfortune to cut your head, even if it's just a small cut, Anything on your head bleeds a ton because of all the blood vessels that sit close to the surface of the skin. And Kathleen's wounds in her scalp were certainly not small and were pretty much the sole source of the insane amount of blood surrounding her body. The medical examiner initially determined that Kathleen's quote-unquote fall down the staircase was most likely accidental. However, a more in-depth autopsy revealed that the 48-year-old woman's injuries were actually much more complicated. Kathleen was found 
to be clutching strands of her own hair that had been pulled out by the roots in both of her hands, which the autopsy indicated she appeared to have grasped prior to her death. She also had dried blood under her fingernails, on the bottoms of both of her feet, and her face. The coroner also noted Kathleen had multiple small abrasions and contusions throughout her face, arms, and hands, some mild to moderate bleeding on two lobes of her brain, but no other extensive brain bleeding or contusions. And I do want to point out, because when you hear that multiple abrasions and contusions throughout her face, arms, and hands, you automatically go, oh, defensive wounds. Like, that's definitely what those are. But if you look at her autopsy photos, those really do not look like defensive wounds at all. It's like bumps. Mm -hmm. It's hard, like little flecks of bruising, like on her knuckles, on, on her face. It's not the violence and the severity of what's on the back of her head in no way lines up with the bruising that is on a little bit on her arms and knuckles and on her face because it's very evident that she did take a tumble at some point whether it Mm -hmm. was from the top of the stairs from three of the stairs or even just could have fallen at some point during that day because everybody bruises super easily they're not incredibly I don't know extreme it just doesn't scream murdered no not to or the... that she was in a struggle with yeah. somebody and they were trying to strike her mm-hmm. and were getting blows in in our professional medical opinion mm-hmm. the seven lacerations on the back of her scalp that we mentioned before had slightly penetrated her skull but she had zero actual skull fractures. Her neck had a small fracture near the left thyroid, and oddly, she also had two pine needles embedded into her hand. Her internal organs appeared to be normal. Her stomach was full of stew. She had mild amounts of nicotine and Valium in her system, and a blood alcohol level of 0.07%, so right under the legal limit of 008 which would be like maybe two or three normal-sized glasses of wine. So we feel like we can reasonably say Kathleen Peterson had had dinner, a couple of glasses of wine, smoked a cigarette, and took a Valium, which is a super common prescription drug to help with anxiety or sleeping. And I don't know about you, Caitlin, but there's nothing in any of that that screams super weird to me. That seems like a pretty normal evening for a vice president of a telecommunications company. All it screams to me is, I wish I had some Valium. Indeed. (laughs) But yeah, there's nothing in that that's like, oh, she was drugged. Yeah. Oh, she was drastically inebriated. And in like on all accounts of people who knew her and Mm -hmm. Michael, this is normal. Right. And if you had a couple glasses of wine and taken a Valium, I would imagine that she would have been a little bit buzzed, but... And she was very small. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you look at her picture, you know, she was a small, slender person. So she was probably healthily buzzed. Like, she could have had a really high tolerance. Like, if that was how she normally did. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely right there at the, like, well, maybe she felt it. Maybe she didn't. It seems like it was normal for her either way. And also important to note, 
the blood around her body and on the stairs was almost completely dry when EMTs arrived. But her body was not yet in rigor, which meant that her death would have occurred within a time frame of 90 minutes to two hours prior. So enough time for the blood to dry, but not so long that her body began to show signs of rigor mortis. Ultimately, the coroner's opinion was that Kathleen's cause of death was, quote, severe concussive injury of the brain caused by multiple blunt force impacts of the head, and blood loss from the deep scalp lacerations may have also played a role in her death. The number, severity, locations, and orientation of these injuries are inconsistent with a fall downstairs. Instead, they are indicative of multiple impacts received as a result of beating. Quote, the lack of evidence that any sort of intruder had entered the Peterson home, plus the lack of injuries typical of a fall downstairs, such as a broken hip, a wrist, or a fractured skull, plus Michael being the only other person with Kathleen at home at that time, plus the autopsy report, confirmed even further law enforcement suspicions of foul play. And 11 days after his 911 call, Michael Peterson was arrested and charged to the shock and horror of his family and friends with the first-degree murder of his wife, Kathleen. As he was arrested and led away in front of his children, a shaking Michael Peterson could only say over and over, I didn't do it. Michael's daughter, Martha, described these events as though two bombshells had been dropped one on top of the other on their family. News footage from this time shows the Peterson children standing close together, holding hands and looking drawn and pale in front of the cameras, but adamantly maintaining their father's innocence. And interestingly enough, the main spokesperson for the siblings defending Michael Peterson's innocence during this time was actually Caitlin Atwater, Kathleen's biological daughter, who was quoted in one interview saying her parents had an absolutely loving relationship and there was no way either would wish any sort of harm on the other. Michael's defense attorney, David Rudolph, was also outspoken from day one about his personal belief in Michael's innocence and was appalled by what he considered to be an extremely biased investigation based on shaky circumstantial evidence from the start. He said that if police were correct that Kathleen did not die from a mere fall, that should have been the beginning of the investigation and not the end of it. And in case you're wondering why the police might have had a reason to have their sights set on Michael Peterson in this case, well, remember how we said he was a newspaper opinion columnist? Apparently, the opinions he was most well-known for were criticizing the Durham Police Department's inability to solve crimes. And he would also bash them for their alleged racism and corruption. I mean, if all this was true, I can't say anything bad about Michael Peterson right here. I mean, we don't know at all if this is true, but if it is, then good for him for calling it out. Because, I mean, we all know that 
racism and corruption is rampant in police departments and in the south i mean no fuck yeah so and also in the documentary he does drive through the town and points out the the fallen communities and he points out things yes and when i was watching it Mm -hmm. first i was like Mm -hmm. interesting to be pointing the finger the other way and that's yeah yeah but that he had been doing it all along Mm -hmm. you know that he had and i will say it does take certain guts to call out you're either really ballsy or really stupid to call out law enforcement for stuff because that can come back to bite you in the butt and as we see that is exactly what happens but i think that just furthers supporting him doing Mm -hmm. it supporting people calling out other people on their bullshit no matter where they stand in society oh my gosh yeah and i know you agree with that oh yeah absolutely calling people out in positions of power for abusing that power especially towards people in marginalized communities is always a plus Michael Peterson would also issue what he literally called the stupid award to none other than District Attorney Jim Harden, the one and the same Jim Harden who was now going to be the lead prosecuting attorney at Michael's trial. Shouldn't they have, like, not allowed him to do this? I mean... I don't understand how that was legal. Yeah, how did that... I genuinely... I'm confused how that was allowed to happen because there's no way that it wasn't known that they had beef because he would have mentioned him by name in articles. And I guess he maybe reassured the judge, oh, I won't allow that to affect my But it's bias. no different than picking jurors. Yeah. You can't have a pre-bias about yeah. the subject of the crime or, yeah. you know... I don't get it. Yeah. But that, also, uh, couldn't Michael and his attorney have, like, oh, asked said to, something? like, change courts oh, or, like, yeah. go outside? Because you can do that, right? Yes. You, you can request to yeah. be. You can. I, it can also be denied mm-hmm. because I know there have been cases where that has happened. Mm-hmm. Like, the Stephen Avery case, He they tried to get that moved outside of Manitowoc, but mm-hmm. it wasn't at least initially, and then actually in the Sierra Joggin case, mm-hmm. that was something that James Worley, I literally could not care less whether or not he has anything going for him at not. all. But he tries to say that he w- had an unfair trial because it was uh, held in his town and like jury was from his town, but that ended up being thrown out because I guess once there's a certain level of crime on the table, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter. And ultimately, it's the decision of the judge, so... But for Michael to have spoken negatively... outspoken against him. Yeah, Yeah. I don't think that that's right, that he was allowed on that team. Because nobody likes being shit-talked in a public forum, unless you're... uh, Unless you're, like, into that. Yeah. (laughs) You have the opposite of, like, praise kink. You want to be shit-dogged. Yeah, and, like, wasn't our friend just telling us about a restaurant where you can go pay to be roasted at the restaurant? I would... I'll stay away from that one. I would just get... I don't know. I would... (laughs) 
don't know what I would do. I would start crying because I'm already afraid that I'm hated by the world. Literally, <laughs> so I just I would... assume everyone hates me. <laughs> I don't need to be, I don't need my shower uh, thoughts confirmed to me. Exactly. Oh my Hi. God. So back from that rabbit trail, after an in- it's after I start reading Caitlin's script, <laughs> bye, bitch. Caitlin is canceled. Bye. <laughs> after an incredibly emotional bond hearing one month later, where a petition signed by multiple friends and family vouching for Michael's character was presented to the judge and Michael's sons and several other friends spoke on Michael's behalf as he sat with tears streaming down his face and shackles around his ankles. He was released on $850,000 bond and returned to the mansion in Durham. During this process, we, the curious bystanders, have a unique look behind the curtain because just a few weeks after Kathleen's death, a documentary crew was inside the Peterson home, quite literally at the table with his legal team, headed up by the well-known defense attorney, David Rudolph, to begin building Michael's defense. The absolutely brutal appearance of the lacerations to the back of Kathleen's head were undeniably shocking and were going to be very difficult to convince a jury had come from a mere fall. As he sat with the autopsy photos, forensic pathologist Dr. Warner Spitz said that once the initial shock of their gruesomeness had worn off and one really looked at them, from a forensic standpoint, they didn't actually line up with the damage typically caused by blunt force trauma of a weapon being repeatedly struck into the skull but rather to Dr. Spitz, and sorry to use this graphic imagery, were the result of the layers of skin on her head mimicking the same damage that would be done to a watermelon if it were dropped against a hard, smooth surface. At that point, where the impact occurred, there would be a wound with additional splints branching off from that wound. So in actuality, Kathleen's wounds were not seven separate impacts to her head, but were the result of three impacts, which caused the seven splits to her scalp. Basically, they would present that Kathleen would have stumbled at around the third step on her way up, fallen backwards, and cracked her head, which caused the initial impact, began bleeding, saw the blood, and got woozy, and likely lost consciousness briefly. And when she did so, would have fallen and hit her head again. Eventually, she would have come to, after having lost a great deal of blood, attempted to get herself up, then slipped and fell for a third and final time, hitting her head a total of three times, causing the seven splits to her scalp, mild brain bleeding, and tremendous blood loss that led to her death. And when Michael would come inside around an hour or so later, he would find her unconscious. Oh, and I also want to throw in that these falling and hitting her head also would have caused that minor fracture in her neck Mm -hmm. that the autopsy report mentioned I don't know if I included it in the script but in the autopsy report it also mentioned something about her having a slightly protruding c4 vertebrae which is could be from a fall or it could just be from your neck being out of alignment i have had that happen before and honestly the position that she was in yeah in the pictures yeah her kind of makes sense her head is to the side Mm -hmm. but i did want to mention that because i do say before that she didn't have her neck broken and law enforcement did not consider i guess that hairline fracture or that slight break to be consistent with a 
the neck break of mm-hmm. a fall down the stairs like that they would have thought that would have been much more severe and it was the type of fracture that if you are believing the blunt force trauma mm-hmm. theory it could have also been caused by that from the impacts repeatedly against your head and your neck being yeah. jolted and back i can and understand forth. like the police believing it wasn't as severe if yeah. they were thinking she fell from the top of the stairs oh my gosh which when yeah. like i first heard this case yeah. i that's what i assumed was from yeah. the top of the stairs exactly yeah because how else could you get hurt that badly yeah yeah Across town, District Attorney Jim Harden and the prosecution team believed Kathleen's wounds showed the exact opposite of a tragic accident. They believed the evidence would show that Kathleen Peterson was beaten, that she was stunned and was bleeding, and that she briefly recovered and struggled with Michael Peterson to a degree that he had to bludgeon her again. And then she essentially bled to death while he watched, then came up with his story about a fall. So, Caitlin, at this point, I don't know if we've emphasized this enough, but Kathleen's fall, quote unquote, and where she was found, we know was at the bottom of the staircase. Whatever happened, whether she was bludgeoned or pushed or whatever, or just fell on her own, it was Mm -hmm. not from the top of the stairs. Everything was determined to have started around the third stair because Mm -hmm. that's where there's blood and that's there's blood splatter going Mm -hmm. up the side of the wall but she was not bludgeoned say at the top of the stairs Mm -hmm. would have already started bleeding and then got pushed pushed down them there was no blood on the wall on the um, rest of the stairs right or on the stairs above that third Mm -hmm. and so the splatter going up the wall at the very bottom of the stairs would have been from say if blood was dripping down into her face Mm -hmm. and she coughed yeah then it would have sprayed up onto the wall or if some capillaries ruptured as she was laying down there so it's just so odd that the scene is just so odd it's it's hard to wrap your mind around this is when you first told me about this case i think it was like a Mm -hmm. year or two ago because i never watched the documentary yeah you told me it was a mind fuck Mm -hmm. and that is exactly what this case is and the prosecution is like yes beyond a shadow of a doubt he bludgeoned her to death and like we listed before since we've been talking Michael Peterson only had blood on the inside of his shorts. Just a little bit. Yes. It wasn't like... No, not not extensive. And on his shoes. But if she was covered in blood and he knelt in the blood next to her and was touching her, holding her... Oh, yeah. That makes a Do lot of sense. Do you expect him not to have blood on him? Yeah. After finding his wife? Exactly. And you would think that somebody who bludgeons someone else to death and hits them repeatedly on a part of their body where blood is going to spray and splatter Mm -hmm. if they're doing that to someone who's also laying still wouldn't the blood be spraying 
all over them. It would be all over their clothes, all over their face, all over their hands. Yep. And even if they tried to wash it off, it the would be... small specks of blood splatter yeah. wouldn't be so focused yeah. on that one wall at the bottom of the stairwell. Yeah. It would have been in the sink. It would have been in the washing machine. It would have... He wouldn't have had time to fully clean himself and done all of that kill her clean himself eliminate any forensic mm -hmm. evidence from the crotch of his shorts up but all but then leave it on his shoes and sh shorts that doesn't really track no for me well and then they they do have a time period with the dried blood and mm -hmm. her body not yeah setting into rigor mortis yeah so yeah. i mean you can obviously see what's where jen and i are leaning in yeah. this case but we just want to lay out the facts and kind of do mm -hmm. devil's advocate because yeah. like you'll hear from me i mm -hmm. i'm like mm, that's pretty convincing and then i'll be like eh, there are times where sense. i go he 100 percent did it and times where i go oh he definitely didn't do it and then times where i go oh he said that one thing in a really creepy way he did it and then another times when he's holding his kids and crying you're like oh no he's such a awesome dad and father and i know this is a super popular case and it's been covered over and over and over but there's so many layers and perspectives to it that we just wanted to get into it too but so. y'all know our opinion yeah <laughs> but what on earth would have been the motive for someone seemingly so happy in his marriage to have violently beaten his wife to death in a horrific manner right before Christmas? Where was the murder weapon? Why was Kathleen holding her own hair in her hands? And why would the ensuing trial have a male escort taking the stand? We're going to tell you, but that's going to take a whole nother episode to do it proper justice <laughs> proper justice <sighs> make sure you come back next week when we'll be taking you through the trial and conclusion of the michael peterson case and where all the peterson kids are now because that's a little questionable to be honest yeah yeah and in the meantime we would love it if you would follow us on instagram at camping is canceled Send us a Gmail with any of your case suggestions to campingiscanceled at gmail.com. Or if you feel so inclined, you can find and subscribe to our Patreon where you can find us at Camping is Canceled. Thanks so much for hanging out with us and we look forward to meeting up with you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>